I think it's actually really stressful um, and counterintuitive for people to have a business that's like growing or like doubling every four to six months. It literally means that every, you know, twice a year, whatever you were doing and were good at now is probably about half as effective. Founding a business is just the tip of the iceberg. The real complexity comes with scaling it. On One to a Thousand, host Jack Altman and I dig deep into the inevitable twists and turns operators encounter along the journey of turning an idea into a business. Here are all the tactical challenges of scaling from the people that built up the world's leading companies like Ramp, Lattice, and Stripe. Our inaugural guest for the show is Eric Gleiman, CEO of Ramp. Let's get right into the conversation. Eric, Ramp is one of the fastest growing companies of the, the last decade, if not more. Uh, your, your rise has been incredible. We're really stoked for you to join Jack and I on the podcast today. Well, well thanks for having me and for, for making me blush. It's, it's good to see you, Eric. <laughs> Eric, one of, one of the things I uh, wanted to start with, I remember a couple of years ago we were chatting and Ramp was already like off to an amazing start. And it was your, I, I think it was your second company, right? You had started, was it one before that you had started? That's right. And that is my first company. And I just remember asking you like, what are you doing differently as being a second time founder providing you with a ton of advantages? And you were like, oh my God, I'm doing so many things different and better. I'm curious as you're now, you know, getting more years into ramp and you're reflecting back on the two different companies, like what are some of the biggest things that you look back and realize that you've learned from the first to the second? I mean, a couple of things. I mean, first, just, um, I think a lot of the first time founder mindset is like scarcity. You've never done it. It's very hard to come by funding. Um, and you're always, at least I was just like terrified of like, we're months away from, from running out of cash. We need to do everything by, by hand. And, and so a lot of it, I, I would say the first time around is um, getting over that. Um, once you've really found product market fit, you have a, a market that's scaling. It's uh, being able to lean into that growth and planning out phases ahead. And so I think one of the first big shifts of doing it the second time around was you know, we, we did a lot of work up front to validate uh, and the business model of Ramp, how it might work, figuring out the unique differentiation. But much more we're thinking immediately went into, um, this is a people business. All this was four years ago is a sheet of paper signed somewhere in Delaware. And we said, we're open for business and we think there's going to be this great company called Ramp. Um, and it drives home. All this is, is a collection of people. I said, way more time on, on trying to find really unique, high slope, um, talented people in different functions. I spent a lot more time on hiring. I think even today, I still spend about 35, 40% of my time on um, um, you know, hiring. And also too, we use and love Lattice for, for, for you know, thinking about performance management, helping people reach their potential, I think is like the biggest shift. Um, you have a lot more taste. I mean, I think in, in the struggle of the, the first time, like uh, my first job was in finance. The, the whole thing was, was don't talk to anybody about anything you're doing. You know, Paribus, my first startup, was all about PR. So I learned how to do, you know, I didn't know how to do it. You had to learn how to do PR by hand. You had to learn about growth by hand. Um, it was, was ramp. We didn't know anything about sales. But you, you start to have time of, I think, through the first experience, sort of banging your head against the wall and struggling, you start to learn all these different functions you didn't have insight in before. And you even start to see people um, who are super capable in these functions and start to recognize expertise appreciated sooner by, by having done something and done it badly. 
you can really appreciate when you see someone out there doing it at that next level. And so those are I've seen the biggest shifts for, for me second time around. But um, I still think that like the, the one thing I'd say is like gravity still applies. Like you might be able to get to a place sooner. You might be a stage or two ahead, you know, so to speak. But, you know, I, I, I've also seen some second time founders like forget, you know, people might trust you more. You might be better at, at hiring. You might know a little bit more about sales and growth, but there's still like, issues you're going to bang your head again uh, into the next time. But um, I, I, I like it. It's, it's been fun. You mentioned hiring is one of the things that you spent a lot more time on the second time around. I'm curious if there's anything else that you think you spent more time on or that maybe you underweighted in the first company. And then I'm also curious, is there anything that you spent a lot less time on the second time around? Totally. Um, so two things. I mean, Hiring, but also like people, and I, I promise this isn't just like a lattice pitch. But like, so like when we sold uh, Paribus, which is a it was when we sold it's a very small startup at the time, twenty ish people. Um, we sold into Capital One, which first of all, great founder, still founder led company with over fifty thousand people. And I think in that first week, I was totally, I didn't know what to make of it because I'm, I'm I'm kind of a millennial, and I, I'd meet people who. So like, hi, I'm Sarah. I've been with Capital One for 20 years. I'm Tom. I've been here for, for 10. And my frame of reference was all my peers would be at jobs for two years and go, one years and go. Um, and I couldn't figure out why were these really talented or whatever people like, am I crazy? Like, where did I end up that people are staying for a lot of years? And something that I, I, I really had no appreciation for um, before I got there and, and learned a lot was how do you to develop people and, and actually over the course of people's lives make them feel and make it genuinely so that they're growing in their career and actually feel like it's it's not just about the the money, but they're able to to grow over the course of their lives. And I think one of the biggest areas that we spend a lot more time and you know, we still have strides to make for sure at at, at ramp, but um, it's understanding not just what's the function, what does the company need, but who are these people? What are their motivations, you know, for, for the team members um, that you're trying to hire. Um, in a way, everyone is the hero of their own story. Um, you know, they're trying to grow just like whether you're a founder or a member of a team. And even in like performance management, thinking about not just the one-on-ones, what do we need to do this week, but once a month, having development conversations. Um, thinking about not just what makes people great, but what does the company need and how do you help shape people over time? And so I, I actually think usually in, in most people's first company, you know, the luxury to think about it. And that's fine from like a one to 10, maybe even one to 40. Like there's nothing else to do, but like survive, get it off the ground. But later on, I think a lot of people get caught flat-footed in uh, not realizing that actually that becomes the longevity of, of people seeing at your company, the excitement and the ability to grow with it actually becomes one of the most important attributes. So that's like, I would say probably the other, in addition to like hiring development, thinking about having um, and growth of people is, is, is the, the second. Yeah, it's a huge one. I mean, like, I think people really underweight how important it is to a company if you have the average employee staying for even four years versus the average of two. Like people in year three and four are so valuable and they become so effective. And it's like, if you can, if you can provide a place where people want to stay around that long on average, I think people underweight this. Maybe one last question I have on this topic and then, and then we can move on is I think one, one of the things that I think is like a really dichotomous set of advice from just the startup ecosystem to founders is should you be lean, scrappy, test and iterate and find your way to product market fit and the story evolves from there? Or should you design it all from day one and have this fat startup where you 
nail the story from the beginning and you're just, you know, laying it all out. And so I, you know, I think about like, you know, on one end of the extreme, you've got like Tesla who like from the beginning is like, these are the three stages versus you've got like a YC company that is like, we're going to just find 10 customers and make them happy and then 30 and we'll see what happens. I'm curious for you as a second time founder, did you approach, did you come in to the product and the strategy differently the second time around? We mean, for sure. We mean, we were much more intentional um, about really trying to understand like the market, what made the business work um, and how does it connect to strategy? And so we, I think we've still been very firm on like, what is the long-term mission of the company? And, and that's been consistent and intentional. Like our, our goal, our mission at Ramp um, is to help all, you know, we tens of thousands of customers now get more out of every dollar and every hour. Um, they didn't start their companies to manage expenses or do accounting. You know, they're, they're trying to achieve their missions. And our goal is to be a multiplier on their most finite resources. How we get there, we can sort of debate the tactics, you know, uh, in a point of time um, and iterate on what's the most efficient way to grow, to reach more people, the product that saves people the most amount of money and time based off of where we sit and, and our product is. You know, I, I think it's important for a company to say, this is North. Um, this is what we're about. And I, I think too much iteration without a direction of having of where you're headed is a problem. And, you know, for, for us, to, even on, on the fat startup versus lean um, compounding um, problem, I think that, you know, 2023, we are in an era where there is an incredible correlation of APIs and microservices, you know, of AI that can literally write different software and you can connect through workflows. And I think of Ramp much more as a workflow and productivity company that happens to move money. Um, and so even as we build new products, it's often around getting our customers more efficiency out of every dollar an hour. And it's less about the product specifically themselves. You know, in the early days of, of Ramp, it was less about, you know, you know, today there's a heavy amount of technical innovation and we, we can talk through that. Um, but actually it was much more business model uh, innovation. It was, there's a business out there it's been very profitable for a you know a long period of time called the credit card industry. Um, the pro, you know it, it, there wasn't a debate of you know could credit card businesses make money? Um, how much would they make? They're very profitable. They're multi billion dollar businesses. Like that was almost like a, a fact as real as gravity exists. The problem was they were taking all the profits and designing increasingly more elaborate advertising campaigns and rewards programs and. Um, we're investing very little actually in improving the core customer experience. And so we, we just said, this is a great business. Um, you can study it. Let's use the proceeds differently. Let's use it to create uh, world-class expense management. Um, let's use it to create great accounting automation. Let's help your business spend less, uh, not more. Um, and so in many ways, if you sort of deconstruct the early ramp strategy, um, actually was the products, the technology, how it works is very understood. Let's reform it in a bit of a different way. But actually, the, you know, the business is, 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 is relatively straightforward. And so you can do that, I think, when you have more experience and really, you know, second time around, understand a bit more of how different industries and business models really work under the hood. To that end, you guys scaled really fast. Talk about kind of the different phases of growth. Like, how, how do you contextualize different phases that you went through? And I'm curious, upon reflection, are there areas which you thought you went too quickly or areas in which you maybe went too slowly or what might have you have done differently? Obviously, it's, it's worked pretty well. But uh, what's your reflection on that? There's some things that are unique to maybe 
entrepreneurs operating in like large scaled industries that really exist. Like I might give different advice if it's like totally net new technology. It's unclear if there's a market with the sizes. So that, that's my caveat. You know, with, with us, it wasn't as if credit cards were, were new. Like American Express was founded in 1850, 1848. Like, like, like these are old companies um, that have been around for a long time. And the question was not, would people want a credit card? It was, would anyone care? Why would people want to use, you know, your financial software when they're they're busy enough already? And so one of the first phases for for Ramp was thinking was was de-risking. Could we build it? You know, could a few people operating at an apartment actually um, create a credit card that works? Our mission was to save you money and time. Something that was differentiated, unique, a real value that might be different in the market. And um, was there a I don't know if this is a term like a message market fit? If you could build the thing. It actually worked. Would people care about it? Is there some unique message that if you launched and started telling people about it, they actually say, I want to try this. This elevator pitch works on me. And for us, um, you know, this first phase was really about getting into that. Um, you know, we incorporated March of 2019, brought on our first customer in, in August. Um, and we launched in Feb 2020 with this moniker of this credit card that wants to help you spend less. And that was helpful for us to it was different enough to go kind of launch into the you know press world, um, start getting real data that's uh, not just friends or different people that you could talk to in New York, but random companies signing up. And so we could you know start to test: um, could we underwrite credit properly? Could we you know um, scalably um, grow consistently with businesses that we didn't know um, was that next phase? I'd argue we didn't really hit true product market fit until later that year. A lot of that phase came from, you know, we realized actually people's payments card occurred recently so much, but they had much more pain. They really disliked Concur or Expensify or all that. And once we really had a, a real possibility to fuse those products, it wasn't just a different message, but it was fundamentally more efficient. You didn't need to teach your employees to use two sets of software to make one transaction and close your books, just one. And I think once we hit that, then it became about, okay, we've got a, pro- we've got a, a, a different message. We help you spend less. We've got a different a product that really is, you know, uniquely and truly better um, uh, than what was there, and we could start to repeat it. The next phase was all about, and this is when we were going from, you know, mid seven figures in in, in revenue um, or seven figures to, you know, really the eight and beyond. How can you scale it? This is really about the repeatable machinery. And so, well, of course, we were kind of testing things along each of those vectors. Could you build it? Is there good architecture? Is this a clear message? Is there product market fit? Can you repeatedly scale the go-to-market motions? But when you get to that late stage, you have all these things interplaying and stacking on each other. And of course, can you hire great people to keep that engine going? Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. I'd love to pull on that thread of like a second product because I think this is something that is a question that weighs on so many founders. Like they get a first thing going and then you're like, well, how's this market going to play? Am I going to be existing in a bundle? Do I do a second product? Probably yes, but when? Do I need resources? Like all this, all this stuff. And we did the same thing at Lattice where we started in performance management. And then when we were just at like several million of ARR, we launched, we launched a second product, employee engagement surveys. And that, that worked well for us. Um, and so I reflect a lot back on like, what does it take to make a second product work? And like, what are the pieces that you should, what are the pieces of uh, 
you know, information or signs that you know it's time? And like, how do you evaluate that it's good to go? Like, does it have to be about the shape of the market? Is it about who's the buyer? Is it about the budget? Is it about competition? Like, what was your lens as you thought about, okay, it's time for, it's time for the second product in, in expenses? I actually love your, your your take on a lot of this. I mean, t- so two things. I mean, first, we, we have this unwavering mission of we exist to save your company money and time. Our purpose is not to sell you more cards, you know, get into different funding flows. It, 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 it's really about this framework of could we measurably figure out how much money you're spending, time you're spending, and could we chip away at that very consistently? Um, and, and so the really the, the the next products that we came out with in our frame of reference wasn't about selling new SKUs. And there are businesses that are like same buyer, they buy these two things. I'm just going to sell more SKUs, and I think that's one way of doing it. I think it has its problems, but that's a way. Ours was was different. It was our mission is we want to help your business spend less time. How do we do this? And in our buyer for for finance teams for founders, their workflow was. They're trying to close their books, run their business, get more out of every dollar, get back to work. And in every purchase, the credit card was actually a very small portion of that value chain. They would have mm. to get it into their books. And so the next first obvious was, okay, we've, we've got this. Let's connect it a little bit deeper to go end to end. Let's build this kind of like connect more of that. So it took us to expense management. We did a great job. We connected to accounting software. That slow was working well. But when you look at the strip of like, what are people spending on? There was this other big thing where it would save all this money and people start saying like, look, this is great. I love your accounting automation, but I move a lot more money through bill payments. I wish I could just use the automations that I'm building. And so, well, it looks like we're adding new products, credit card, expense management, bill, bill, bill pay. What we're actually doing is reducing the number of, of products that our customers have to use, as well as reducing a lot of the steps in the workflow. And I think that's what's that's correlated really well um, to, to Rams continuing compounding growth. It, it's part of what's allowed us to grow, you know, four times year over year last year, um, added nine figures at year revenue and you know scale. Is it, it's it's not kind of taking new buyers, new products that might interplay and sell. It's actually it's this this problem you're trying to solve. You can add on more, and it gives you more leverage to the whole product suite around it. Easier said than, than done, but, but a lot of the thinking is, is there an end-to-end outcome? And do your products interact to solve one workflow if you can? I think it lends itself to much easier adding of second and third products versus, hey, there's this large TAM, we have this right. captive audience, let's go sell them this thing. That I think often people fall in that trap. Yeah, no, I, lo- I love the sort of mission orientation of like, this is the problem. This is the fundamental problem we're solving for customers and we solve it in various ways. I still wonder like, Tactically, if you like zoom back to the early days of those products, when you think about like what made them successful, because in some of those cases, even though it is expanding what you're doing for a customer, you might be, I don't know, are are you rip and replacing like a much more mature solution that's a point solution in some cases, or are you mostly trying to get people, you know, just sticking with the expense, expense example, are you trying to get people before they would have had anything? And does that change the thinking on how you're going to go to market, how mature the product has to be? I just wonder about some of these tactical pieces for a founder who might be thinking about, you know, I exist in a category that has a lot of point solutions. I've got one right now and I want to find my way to the next. And yeah, I'm going to orient in this mission. But do I also have to think about certain levels of maturity relative to to other products in the market or like what what sort of uh, 
maybe smaller tactical insights do you think you might have picked up in some of these? I think I, it's it's a good push. I mean, the first thing I, I would say is I actually think that there's very few products that like exist in a vacuum. Your product, whether you're building integrations or not, we, even if you're an analytics product to it, um, you know, HR insights platform to a payments platform, you are probably connecting with something adjacent. Um, maybe it's accounting software, maybe it's bill payment software. And the question I, I, I think that I would, you know, I think very tactically, you can be replacing, of course, other larger customers, other, you know, um, different types of software. And you can sort of compete on a few vectors. So first, I would, I would try to identify what's around you. Um, how is your product interacting? Where either, you know, you actually can do that next job better, or something adjacent to you, or if you're solving this workflow, you going wider, actually helps in that workflow. So what's the job to be done? Can you go wider? Or is there part of your value chain where you can go extend deeper into that is, is maybe my, my mental model for it. You can think about the product use cases or you can think about the, the monetization. Um, you know, when you think about ramp structurally, one of the, you know, e- even for, for us, we're a free product that pays customers to use it and monetizes in a different way. Now, rather than using that for more elaborate ads, we can say, let's use it for great software development. And we might compete differently with other companies that the only way they can monetize is let's charge for the software license. We might actually be able to monetize and say, let's use the product more deeply. Let's, let's, and, and we can give you more insight to save you money and time. That can give us a structural advantage. And so I think it's worth thinking about what's the, what's the end user use case? What products are adjacent? And do you also have a business model you know, or talent advantage, a structural advantage that lends yourself well to the question of if you're going to compete, why should someone pick your product um, versus a different? And um, I think often finding the cross-section of that, there's going to be some where there's deep user pain, a deep structural advantage. And I think those are, if you have that, that interaction, those are great products to be pursuing next. If there's areas where it's low pain, you know, no advantage, maybe you want to partner and, and stick with that. And so you want to think about what's your framework, but those are some of the tactical um, uh, things that I, I think about. Fascinating. I want to segue into, into competition. So I'm, I'm curious how you thought about competition as being in terms of being a second mover, uh, not, not the first mover, but then also just more broadly, I think about the advantages and disadvantages of being in a highly competitive market like, like you've been with Ramp. Outsourced R&D. <laughs> These are people exactly. that are, you know, they're, they're, they're running, in a way, we're very fortunate. There's companies that have existed for, for decades and are spending, in some cases, quite literally billions of dollars to go and run experiments to reveal what does the market think. And um, simply by paying attention and, and being really curious and open-minded, you can learn a lot. You know, um, and often, I think, great companies, um, and you should respect competitors, um, often they are deeply brilliant in some ways. There's something they're extremely good at observing that and, and having the humility and respect to say, like, what makes this company truly great can teach a lot about spikes that companies orient around, as well as to preferences out in the market. You also can use that to figure out where there's holes uh, in the market. Um, I think part of Ramp's uniqueness was, you know, most of our competitors uh, were thinking a lot about sort of excess and and getting people to spend more. The more that we understood others, the more we saw in, in this validation of, you know, there's very few people really thinking about um, that actual end customer helping them spend less. And so when you, you really know others well, 
see the successful results of experiments over months, years, decades in some cases. Um, you can teach you a lot and it can help you find some of the holes in the, the market. I don't think we're the second mover. I think we're probably like the hundredth and whatever mover. We're, we're, we're really um, late. And I think that's also classically true. I, I, I think there was this, this, this false belief that you had to be the first mover. And it, it, I mean, it just has never been the case. Like, you know, Apple and Microsoft weren't the first. Um, they were early, but they were not the first. Facebook was not the first. Google was like not the first search engine. Uh, first mover advantage can be good, but but actually you can benefit a lot. And so, you know, I, I think having the humility to learn a lot about, to to study, to to take in and, and think the best of your competitors helps you come into um, better insights ultimately into what matters of what does your customer actually care about um, and how do you help your, 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 you know, obsess over them. So just on that note, you know, Justin Kahn says to startups, startups don't compete with other startups. They compete with people not giving a shit. But when you're the hundredth mover and actually these startups have a, a bunch of traction, they're big companies, uh, you actually can learn things from, from other, from your competitors and it's worth paying attention to what, what they're focused on and where they're going. Justin's an incredible mentor and, it has been for years. He's, I mean, you're totally right. I think it's super well said. And uh, he said it a lot more elegantly than I did. That's for sure. So I'm curious as the hundredth mover, which we all are, Lattice is a hundredth mover as well. How did you pick which customers to serve and how tightly scoped did you go? So like, and I'm thinking more in your, in your early days, which then of course becomes like the nugget around which like so much else happens. But how did you pick whether it was by segment and customer size, whether it was by industry, whether it was by people who had a certain spend profile, what was your mindset like, or what was the thought process that led you to decide, here's how narrow, if at all, we're going to go, and here's why? This is a really, it's, it's a really good question. Um, and, and I think even to one of the earlier ones of what, what a second-time founders try to do differently, it's understanding like who is your ideal customer profile um, and how do you do like the right scale of market research consistently to, to arrive at that. Um, I think a lot of people in, in building their businesses for the first time, you know, th there is something that's, that's dead right about make something people want that YC like nails and it's like a never forget it rule. But you need to, since people get trapped of like, you're consulting for, for a small business or like you talk to too few people and you get really just pigeonholed into this, this strange specific direction and you made something that a few people want and it's great, you can be loved, but it may not actually compound into there's a broad base of market. And so I think one of the best things that you can do early on uh, is actually just talk to a lot of people. Like don't be nervous about talking about your idea or why you exist. Um, there's some subtle things you can do tactically when you're you're framing the early conversations. You know, our pitch to other business owners, finance teams was never, we're a new credit card company. We'd love to earn your business and, and sell this card to you. Let me walk you through my pitch. It was, we would love to, you know, um, um, we're building a new kind of card that's designed to help your business spend less. I would love to help your company spend less. And, and frankly, I'd, I'd go to work for free to prove the value for, for you. Now, are there any places that you think your business is spending too much money or time? Or maybe we can talk about a couple areas and, and hypotheses, but, but trying to sit on the same side of the table um, as, as people, solve a problem together, invite people to be part of it. Uh, 
Many people will say no. Some will get interested and actually want to work with you and think about it. When you, and when you start talking to the people and getting that actual insight, getting under the hood of it, we started seeing these different use cases you know, pop up. There were some people who had like very specific and weird things that were very non-scalable. But we started seeing, just to give a specific example, you know, after talking with 50 different businesses, we saw this use case of like, if you'd find these like series A through C businesses circa 2019, 2020, the, the go-go days, you see like an incredible amount of waste. You know, um, some member of a team would sign up for like a sauna, then another would sign up for, you know, Trello, another for, um, you name it. Like, and, and, and you would see this pattern of like eight project management softwares that just exist. If you looked at enough, you know, spending patterns of companies, you just see 90 days of transactions, you duplicative. And, you know, it was very scalable to say, let's just have a simple clustered list of project management software, which you'd run a simple script. Like, that's easy. Whereas negotiating a specific contract with a, you know, a manufacturer that, you know, only a few customers use was very hard. Like you could maybe save people money there, but it wasn't scalable. And so you'd start seeing these, these examples of, okay, across enough companies, what were these patterns that were emerging? Where you can learn a lot about who actually was willing to try it and buy in our early customers. You know, they're still with us, but, you know, we started unlocking more and more parts of the business. And so we tried to early on, you know, we arrived at, you know, we, we exist for um, earlier stage companies, could be venture back or not. Um, we exist to save you money and time. And often the ones that we did best on really, really had somewhere between five and, you know, let's say uh, 100 employees. We thought we could service the five through 20, but we couldn't be differentiated. But we might be able to be differentiated in kind of this larger segment of it. And so then we later, once we started realizing, seeing the patterns in the product, we started working on, could we repeatedly reach these folks? And, you know, I think identifying your ICP helps you a lot. It allows you to be focused and have a much tighter pitch of, you know, who you're speaking to and why. If they want to do references, there's more other customers like them um, that puts them at ease. Uh, and hopefully, it's a pattern that you've verified and validated is, is large enough that you can go and um, scale into the next 10 to 100 to 1,000 to 10,000 if, if your TAM is large enough. Um, but th- that's sort of the messy summarization of like the messy process that we were trying to think about and oh you know every few weeks asking ourselves is like are we able to narrow narrow this down and is it deep enough hey we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors one of the many bits that stood out there for me most was that so many companies think about selling something to their customers instead of actually thinking of it like a partnership where i'm on the same side of the table we're solving a problem together and yes we're both gonna do well from that but like we're solving this thing together. I think that gets, that's easy to get lost when you just want to close the sale. Um, that mindset's great. In some sense, it, it's sort of like an insane proposition to someone to be like, we're just operating out of this random office building or in a bunch of apartments and you should use us, our software instead of any other provider and huge company on, on it. And I think overcoming that, one of the few but real advantages that, that early stage customers, companies can have is, you know, look, we may not be the largest, you know, we're not the industry standard, but I can guarantee that if you call me, I will pick up uh, and I'm going to go to sleep thinking about how do I make you the happiest customer in the world? I'm going to wake up obsessing on it. Um, and we're partnering and forging this specifically. So you have a, a really bright and extraordinary team who's working harder than we should be um, to make this outcome fantastic. And, and, and really internalizing that and honing in early on will, one, 
make you know ideally your customers very happy, but to give you the space to have enough market data where you can start to understand how you can separate and then turn on the, the you know the machinery of building a company around it. I love that. I think we all need we all need more of that. Maybe for the last few minutes, if we could transition over to sort of just talking about like some of your thoughts around uh, company building, maybe starting with just like exec hiring. Obviously, you've gotten to like do a lot of that now. Um, and I'm curious to hear about like any like big learnings, takeaways. What's the one thing that you maybe like wish you knew when you were like hiring your first execs or like what what's the what's the what's the thing that's most important to you in your learnings? There's a few sets of things. So like, I think in like hiring, it's sort of like building early stage startups. Like I, I think Jessica Livingston or you wrote a great book called Founders at Work and talks about startups are not like the Toyota Corolla or Honda Accord, these like very standard ready for any situations, you know, great, great and all old stuff. You know, early stage startups are often more like an F1 car where they like look very weird, but go fast and maybe they fall apart right after the race. And like, you know, it, it's it's built to spec to do exactly what you need to do is, I think, really important early stage company building and also like early executive hiring, let's say to like 100 people. I think that's still very much what you're looking for. It's really acutely understanding what's the problem, knowing that well enough so that if you're going out and making an expensive hire, you have the validation that this is a need and that you really want the expensive product that you're uh, and the person that you're bringing in. You know, next, I, I think hiring... The other side of that is um, understanding talent markets well enough and like who's great at it. We'd use like a sports analogy. It would be great if you could hire someone from the Chicago Bulls in like the 1990s, like truly greatest of all time, like anyone on that team. And there's a few players who are just like, that is the best. Chicago Bulls in like 2010s, wonderful people, pretty good. Is there any Chicago fans out there? But like, you know, I, I think even in hiring executives, it's kind of like that. Like sometimes you want to understand like, not every company is great at, at everything, but there are probably some things they're specifically great at. Like there are some companies that are extraordinary at growth marketing, some that are extraordinary at credit and underwriting. Sometimes they're great at one thing, and then over time, the people who were there and made it leave. Um, and so understanding both what are companies excellent at, what's the vintage, and are you talking to people specifically? And it makes it really easier to pair back on, okay, this is important for your company. The person who comes in has a knowledge base um, and was at the right place at the right time can come in and when they are in, they're successful right away because you validate it as a real problem for, for your business and you can scale from there. And often I think, you know, the momentum, I think I thought too little about like executive momentum early on uh, at Ramp. You, you know, I think there's a tendency, especially among second time founders, to hire like big name executives and give them a giant job versus thinking about what could they be very successful at on day one through 90. Earn goodwill, proof points, getting into the mix with companies, solving the problems so that they can sort of compound and get on to the second, to the third, to the fourth, to the, you know, whatever. And so probably the short, the biggest shift over time has been if you can, having a preference to hiring people who are excellent, um, but maybe, you know, versus a C-level, try hiring at a VP versus a VP maybe ahead of. Um, try to hire a, a lead and stretch people um, in through getting wins under your belt, um, finding the great person who was really there at time and stretching over time. I found that that really helps um, versus making that giant big name hire where they might be great and often the failures are not the executive's fault. I think it's often the company's fault for not going through that process. 
um, where you stretch people too fast, they get underwater and can never get themselves out. I love that. And I love the thing you said about like learning the market. I think about this, like before renting an apartment, you should like go look at a bunch to see of a feel for like, what is this neighborhood at this price point and these specs like it's a bit like that where it's like you got to just like go meet some and feel it out a little bit before you know what's out there even love that we've all been in the situation where we're growing something fast we need to fill a role and we've interviewed someone and it's it's not the perfect it's not like a hell yes but we got to fill this role (laughs) and so we either need to make a decision like is this good enough or do we kind of you know restart the search or you know risk not being able to fill this role Eric, how, how have you thought about when you're in this position? Um, not perfectly. <laughs> I, I, I'd say there are times when we've done it better than others. And look, I, I, I actually think like, I think it's good to embrace imperfection in problems. Like I, I actually think that's normal. I, I, I think that as companies get larger, if you, if you deconstruct how many companies actually hire, it's less about finding one person who is like a hell yes, I will make it work. It's more of people have veto rights. Um, and it's who can pass, you know, without getting no's from different people um, is, is often how, how big companies will, will look for it. The, the things that we've specifically done, so just tactically, as we do interviews first, we try to think about like, what are the skill sets that we would hope for, you know? And we, we go at length internally on our scorecards. Some might be like, um, there's one interviewer who's so one, one of the worst things that can happen when people interview people is you don't coordinate up front and, you know, let's say four to five interviewers ask some variants of the same questions. So you keep getting the same signal and the same thing and you have a limited sense. You know, we set up the roles, who's playing, who's doing what, who's looking at career development, who's looking at, you know, um, you know, it's a, a hiring manager ability to, you know, hire teams. We, you know, we'll, we'll run references. We have, we have exercises together and we actually have d- people doing very different functions. Some are trying to, you know, learn and ask questions. Other people might ch- try to disagree with people about something over the phone and how see people, how people react to that. Um, and you're trying to make sure that in your, in your own process, first, you're getting different signals. Next, we try to hire as rules for like spikes. Uh, sort of slope over intercept. One of the problems of startups is you don't have the resources to outcompete. And so your best way to hire great people and make it work is you find people who are really much more capable and undervalued by the rest of the market. Maybe you can find some signal that makes them world-class and if applied directly to your problem, that spike more than pays for itself in the context of, of your company. And so we actually, if, if there's a hiring manager and they have like a strong yes, they can basically override like weak yeses and nos, um, or in some cases, like we'll want to talk through a strong no, but if the hiring manager is like, sign me up, hold me accountable, I'm hiring this person, I'm going to make it work, they can basically hire. Um, and that's what we, we, we look for. Um, it doesn't always work out perfectly, um, but I, I think that th- the scenarios where I've seen it go really sideways is everyone is like, we really need this, this person isn't perfect, I don't have high conviction, but then we're going to make the hire. Usually it's some sign of no one is sort of slamming their, their fist down saying like, we've got to have this person in. And often someone who's willing to say like, I'm going to hold me accountable. I'm going to do what it takes. Hell or high water, I'm going to make this person successful. I, I find that that's correlated. As long as that's there, you can work through issues. You can plan and scope role and responsibility or even how others cover the gap around that. But what you can't, um, or I found very hard to overcome is if no one is saying like, I will make this work, I see it, 
uh, and I'll be there. Like that's where I think people get into trouble. Um, and so I, I would try to craft your own processes around, you know, uh, you know, weeding those out. Let's segue a bit to to making the most of one's board. Uh, I, I'm, I'm curious, but partly how you think about board construction, but then also how you think about board kind of optimis- management, optimization, or what people might not fully appreciate about how, or have a misconception about how to make the most of one's board. I, I, th- I feel like a board relationship is almost like marriage. Like you could ask the question of like, who should I marry? And it's like a, this really hard question to answer. And, you know, um, you can act, you can get a divorce. It's very hard to ask a board member. In some cases it's impossible over like a decade long, long period. And so I, I, I almost think that the pre-question I would ask is like, can you start to develop a relationship with someone you know, date in, in some context prior to getting married would be my strong advice for, for, for anyone. Um, and and I, I think you can first start with, um, you know, before you bring on a lead investor, like update people on the business, get their advice. You know, it's a very valid question to ask, how can I be helpful? And say, well, here's how you can be helpful and see who does. Um, um, actually, you know, try to get people to reveal what they're about, what their spikes are. Can you work well together before there's even the like, would they be good? Because I, I think your your the reality and your lived experience and and that the shape of that over time is going to be much more important than you know what are the skills on, on papers. I'd start with that. You can get advice from people. In some cases, you can actually make people a small advisor to your company and try to work on problems together. And there were a few people that jumped out as very obviously. Every time we talk with them, I wanted to pick up the phone. They wanted to talk to, and we were able to really help with it. So I would start with that as a pre part of it. Next, like with talent, I would think about spikes. Um, you know, one of our board members, um, Keith Raboy at, at, at Founders Fund, uh, I think he was very famous. He, he gave this, this lecture, you still go back to it at least once a year called How to Operate. It's on YouTube. And, you know, he breaks down very consistently what are the principles for as you're building and constructing your own operations of a company, how do you scale that and think about it over time? And that was important for, for us as a company where the business model worked. There were products out there, but speed was going to be one of the most important things. And so we were looking specifically for that. Different businesses of different facets. Sometimes you need someone who's an expert on design or great engineering, or maybe you have a, you know, need a lot of capital and, and, and working with firms that are really known not just for seed investing, but multi-stage crossover investing could be important. And so I would think about like what are the spikes that if you can only be great at one or two or three things. How do you find people who are really great at one or two of those things? Try to build a relationship around engaging with problems in that area before you bring them on. And if you find there's a good fit, bring them on and build. And ideally, if you've done it well, you have different types of perspectives, different peoples, different backgrounds, and different functional spikes, um, as well as walks of life of these people. So you can have you know, a spiky and robust company uh, in the ways that matter. I'd love to hear... Your thoughts on building in New York? I think it's an interesting topic just because in the last couple of years, obviously with, you know, COVID and then remote, I think the topic of like, where should I build? Like, just like it, it got, it got its time in the sun again. Um, you know, there's historically been a lot of Silicon Valley centrist thinking uh, in tech. Obviously, New York has started to like really have a lot of awesome companies, yours included, but we've also seen some like just really big, successful public companies uh, built there uh, now. And so I'm just curious your own reflections on someone who's been in New York a long time, has built in New York a long time, like, uh, and presumably uh, likes, likes building your company there. Like, what are the, what, what are the sort of uh, thoughts you have on, on New York and San Francisco? 
I think there was a point in time where like the advice was really good is if, if you wanted to build a company, like a venture back company, it had to be in like the Valley. And like a lot of the reason is like, if you looked at the venture capital investment structure, it's a very weird asset class. It sort of depends on your ability to just like grow really unnaturally and bizarrely fast. Uh, and there's very few businesses that can do that. And almost all of them from like the 80s, 90s, 2000s on almost entirely were there. And I think it's actually really stressful um, and counterintuitive for people to have a business that's like growing or like doubling every four to six months. It literally means that every, you know, twice a year, whatever you were doing and were good at now is probably about half as effective. Or um, if you give it a full year, a quarter is effective. Um, and so quite literally, you as executives are, are becoming less useful. You have different functions that worked well together. You need to break up that function and, and reconstruct the business. And the intuition around like the physics of that are really rough. And I, I think that this idea of like you had to build in Valley was shorthand of there's a huge collection of people who've been through that, keep going through that. And they're happening here. And you shouldn't hide because it's like this zip code. But if you hire a product marketer, there's a product marketer who knows how to sell software, but like they know what it's like when it's going through and they, they get reorged and work differently. And they're cool with that. And they kind of know what happens next. And so people can have that sense of what it looked like. And I think it was almost entirely concentrated there. I think it started to flip somewhere between five and 10 years ago in New York um, for two reasons. You started to see these first-class venture businesses being built start to finish uh, in New York, right? The, the MongoDBs of the world, the, the data dogs um, you know, in that world, the direct-to-consumer companies that scaled super rapidly, um, and see so people who knew what it was the Peltons, they knew what it was like to go from like zero to you know high growth really fast. So you started to see this density. There was a mass movement of large engineering offices, which I think are pretty important to a lot of you know venture scale businesses. EWS opened a huge office in New York, um, Meta, um, Google, Stripe, um, great engineers um, and great, you know, growth product minds weren't just there. They had sort of come up in the Bay Area, but they wanted to move back to the coast. And so they were there. You know, even the capital base, you know, the great financial services companies classically were all in New York. A lot of the great ad agencies, design agencies were in New York. And so there was a lot of things that were always special about the city, but it was missing that density of people who knew. And I think over the past few years, it suddenly flipped uh, and the pandemic accelerated it where people kind of can move anywhere. And a lot of people who just love the, 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 the weirdness and the you know, energy of the of New York City, that it be suddenly became viable. Um, uh, and, and, and so, yeah, I, I think it's an amazing time to be building in New York City. I mean, I think there's, there's other geos that are benefiting from this too, but this sort of state of mind of what it takes and the expertise around companies that scale like this allows you not just to get off the ground, improve product market fit, but in the theme of the podcast, go from one to a hundred, you know, a hundred to, to, to a billion. Like I, um, uh, I guess the city's uh, time's gone. That's a, that's a perfect place to, to wrap. Uh, Eric, still early on the ramp journey relative to where you're, you're going to go, but already it's, it's one of the great case studies of our time. So thanks so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your hard-earned uh, company-building lessons and wisdom with us. Thanks for the opportunity. It's great to be here.